Welcome to another AIC NSW Conveyancing Conversation. The podcast series brings you the latest in case law, legislative updates and conveyancing practice from a select group of experts in the field. In this episode, Margaret Collier talks to Leanne Hughes, the Director of Litigation and Policy in the Office of the Registrar-General. For more than 25 years, Leanne has provided legal and policy advice to the New South Wales Registrar-General and Surveyor-General on a wide range of matters, from plans and dealing registration and administration of the Torrens Assurance Fund to the digital transformation of the land title system and the conveyancing process. Our guest today is Leanne Hughes. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you, Margaret. It's it's great to be here. I thought we'd start first with what's been happening recently with COVID-19 and the efforts New South Wales LRS have made under its continuing business plan to permit electronic lodgement of non-electronic dealings so that people can, if they choose, avoid having to attend the lodgement office. Has this been successful? Have there been any problems? Thanks, Margaret. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think the process has been very successful. It's been a great collaboration between industry and stakeholders. The whole thing was put in place very quickly because, as you remember, when the whole COVID-19 situation started to rise, no one knew what was going to happen. So we began working together with PEXA and LRS and the Office of the Registrar-General to try and put something in, in place, um, even thinking that maybe we'd get to a point where no one could could even come into the office at all. The idea now is that documents can come in via this electronic channel. Mainstream dealings should still in the normal way via PEXA through the um, the usual electronic conveyancing platform. But what the BCP solution allows is for those other documents that couldn't come in electronically to come in in a different way so that people don't have to go into the um, city and lodge the documents in person. Though I just might say that the that the lodgement office still is open, and as I understand it, lots of dealings are still coming in personally. So it's been terrific. As of a couple of days ago, I think that 328 dealings have come in via this method. There's been about 55 powers of attorney, 34 applications for replacement certificate of title, which is strange, I thought, but anyway, that's what it is. 33 changes of name and 29 leases. So it's been taken up very well. Something um, interesting that's also come out about this whole continuing business plan is what's been happening also with electronic signing of documents. There's been different arrangements put in place by different organisations. The changes to the Electronic Transactions Act that allow documents to be witnessed remotely and and also the changes that we've put in to the conveyancing rules that allow um, otherwise paper documents to be signed electronically. That's been a great success and something that we'll see how it goes in the future. The ability to upload and lodge the PDF paper dealings was created purely as a temporary measure. Has any end date been set for this? Is it something that might continue on? Well, that's... An interesting question. I think when the legislation was amended to allow for electronic signing, there was an end date put in 
because the thing that has enabled the changes to be made with electronic signing is has been done by using regulations. And it's not good law to allow regulations to override the actual provisions of, of an Act. Sometimes it's called a Henry VIII's Clause, a provision in an Act that allows um, the executive to override the law rather than Parliament. Not a good thing to happen. So it will definitely change, but it may not go back to the way it was. I think what will happen is that there'll be more permanent solutions put in place to replace the, the ones that have just been done in a temporary way. Okay, well... The ability to lodge the paper dealings was introduced in two tranches through PEXA, the first group being the residual RPA dealings, um, which are lodged as a tran- which are lodged against a transactable title, and then the second group that came in about f- a fortnight later being the general registry dealings, such as old system co- conveyances, powers of attorney that you just mentioned, where there's no Torrens title to lodge against. What happens when a PDF is uploaded and lodged. Are these documents and dealings automatically registered like the electronic dealings are or are they just lodged and then have to be examined the same way as over the counter lodgements would be done? Yes, they are examined in the same way as paper. We think of the PEXA business continuity process as an electronic delivery service. The PEXA document that is signed by the subscriber is just like a cover sheet. Once the documents are delivered to LRS, then the attached dealing, whatever it is, is examined as if it had been lodged in paper. So, as we've said before, some of these dealings that are lodged relate to the Real Property Act and uh, will be registered on the title, but also some of them are registered in the General Register of Deeds, like the Powers of Attorney. So they're going to be examined in different parts of land registry services. Another interesting thing about the whole process is that requisitions might be raised on the documents, and those requisitions have been going out under what's called the Virtual Lodgement Office that LRS has introduced, which is a bit of a strange title probably because it (laughs) kind of implies that you can actually lodge documents that way, but it's, it's not intended for that. What it's intended for is for other communications with land registry services. So it's a great way to respond to requisitions if they're raised, and they there have been a few requisitions raised with these paper dealings. Interestingly, the the most common requisition that's raised uh, with these documents is that the lodgement panel is left bank, blank on the paper dealing. Oh, which, because they're not used to doing that, Yes, I guess. Right. And, and I guess people think that it's being lodged via, with the cover sheet in PEXA, so it's... And you've already got this information. Why do you need it twice? I guess, I guess that's the thinking anyway. Yeah, yes, yeah. but... People have to bear in mind that what is lodged is actually the paper document, so the paper document has to be completed as as it would uh, normally. Right. Well, given the total of number RPA dealings in existence, if you go to the New South Wales LRS website, the, the list of RPA potential RPA dealings is quite lengthy. At the moment, there are only a relatively few available in electronic format. Um, I'm thinking of things like transfers, mortgages, etc., The residual dealings not yet converted were originally set down to be converted in batches sort of between sort of now May and December 2020. Now, clearly COVID-19 has had an impact on everyone's timelines. Are, Are these dealings still expected to be converted at some point this year or has the temporary ability to lodge 
paper PDFs meant that the conversion has might be delayed or well, postponed. Well, you, you're right, Margaret, that the timeframes have been turned around with the COVID situation, but they're it's still planned that the rest of the residual documents will be introduced this year. In a way, I suppose, this process has been a way of testing out the residual right. documents. What is provided through the business continuity plan isn't what it's going to be like when we have the residual documents in. There will be m- much more functionality in the Pixel workspace. But in a lot of ways, um, some of the documents will be treated as attachments in a similar way to what's being happening under the business continuity plan. Right. So once those dealings are converted to electronic dealings, do you foresee that there will be a time when all of them will be mandated and there won't be any paper lodgements or is that not practical? <laughs> I don't I don't think that's practical. Mm. There are a lot of the documents, the residual documents, as you said, there are over 100 of them. Some of them are quite complicated. For instance, if you're doing a possessory application where you're claiming land that someone's owned for 12 years and they want to claim ownership of it, it requires lots of supporting documents and evidence to prove the person's entitlement to the land. There may be things that are easier to lodge in person than to come in electronically, so that that kind of thing probably may never be mandated. But certainly the intention is that other documents will be mandated as we go along. Right. Oh, well, then that sort of leads me into what was going to be my question that that was that currently we've got transfers, mortgages, discharges, caveats and withdrawals, and I think transmission applications that are currently mandated. Um, and I was wondering if there was plans to extend that list in the short term, but... No. 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 So originally, before before COVID, um, the plan was, and this is already provided for in the conveyancing rules, that from the 1st of July 2020, actually what the conveyancing rules say, that any dealing signed, lodged by itself or in combination um, that's signed after the 1st of July 2020 must be lodged using an ELNO if it was eligible for lodgement in that way. And what we were going to do was prepare a, and what we, we have done, a list of eligible documents that must come in in a mandatory way. At the moment, those documents that are mandated are just the mainstream dealings, which are the ones that, that you mentioned, Margaret. And we were going to gradually add more documents to that list. And top of the list would, was probably going to be leases, but we, we aren't doing that now. And given the disruption to everyone's business at this time, there's no intention that we're going to mandate any of these documents now. What we're aiming to do is just make them available so that people can lodge them this way, but not in a mandatory way. We won't revisit that until later this year at the earliest. Right. The, oh, the other thing I was thinking about that ORG did have planned was regarding the um, bulk conversion of certificates of title. Back on 1 October 2018, all paper certificates of title held by ADIs were replaced with electronic titles, and this was then followed by a consultation paper regarding the conversion of the remaining um, certificates of titles held either by the registered proprietor or a private mortgagee. Has any further progress been made on this? What can we expect? Well, there's been lots of progress happening on this. (laughs) So... Recently, the New South Wales government approved uh, the making of a bill to facilitate 
the rest of the cancellation of the certificates of title. We really need to change the legislation to, to enable this. And so we're going to amend the Real Property Act to remove all references to certificate of title. Uh, removing certificates of title will help streamline the conveyancing process. Um, already today, 95% of all transactions are done electronically and certificates of title are the last paper impediment, I suppose, in the whole conversion mm. to digital process. Hopefully we're looking to introduce the bill into Parliament in September this year, if all goes well, depending on the Parliament's schedule now that things have been disrupted. Um, but we're going to, we'll do this slowly with stakeholders' input. Right. Once we, we have a bill prepared, we'll send it to key stakeholder groups like the AIC for, for comment on the bill. Other states have been moving away from certificates of title. I think really that um, New South Wales is one of the last to get rid of their, their certificates of title. South Australia have recently removed them and, um, well, Queensland haven't had them for some time. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, we're, we're going to follow that way. We're also going to change the current requirements for control of the right to deal. Uh, and probably this is the reason why we have to amend the Real Property Act. Because at the moment, what the Act says is we can cancel a certificate of title if we record on the title who has control of the right to deal. And while that can, the person who controlled that was a registered mortgagee, it becomes more difficult when you've got a title without a mortgage. Who has control of the right to deal? The owner does, of course. So we, the, the title already says the owner's name and it makes providing consents quite difficult with this extra layer of what we call cord consents. So we're going to remove that requirement. Obviously, the owner of the land will always have to consent to any transaction that affects their land. They'll actually be a party to the dealing and, and signing the document, so there's no need for additional consents. So we're going to go through the Real Property Act and just rationalise all those provisions that deal with consents and take out provisions that are now going to be not necessary, like applying for a lost certificate of title, penalties for withholding certificates of title. So, And we've gone through all of the acts in New South Wales. I think there's about 50 plus acts that refer to certificates of title in some way or another. So we're going to have to amend all of those. So <laughs> what seems like a little task becomes a big one. Right. Oh, it sounds really daunting and it sounds like it's going to be a major rewrite of the Real Property Act or is it not that extensive? Yeah, it's hard to say. There will be a little bit of structural change but nothing significant changes. Obviously, we've always said the register is everything. Um, the certificate of title was just a token of ownership but the thing that proves a person's ownership is the register. That remains unchanged even when certificates of title are removed. So people can still be confident of the security of their ownership in land. None of that changes with the cancellation and removal of certificates of title. Right. Well, while we're on paper titles, one question that we frequently get to our helpline is around who holds the paper certificate of title if there is one after settlement. Now, obviously, if it's a pre-2012 title, it must be lodged with LRS to be checked for authenticity. But what's the situation for more recent titles? Where do they go? Well, they get retained by the subscriber. Which, which subscriber, though? The vendor or whoever... Oh, the, the court holders. 
Yes. Right. Okay. Um, I know that there's a little bit of confusion about that one because there is a there's the traditional concept of when this matter is settled, you hand over the certificate of title. Yes. And in there's also a provision in the contract that says subject to any um, prescribed requirement, they hand over the paper title after settlement. And I, I think that there are, there's a little bit of confusion out there about that there is actually a prescribed requirement that the court holder's subscriber hold that title and hold it for seven years. So I just wanted to clarify that point because, as I say, there, I do get that question quite often and I just wanted to Make yes. sure, clarify it both for the listeners and also in my own mind. <laughs> yes. Okay. No, it's a, it's a good question. But when the vendor goes to t- to transact and, and sell their, their property, the certificate of trial in that sense currently, while we still have them, does prove the person's right to deal with land. And so that's something that the um, subscriber would have had to check that they had the right to, to deal with land. So when they're certifying that they hold the documents necessary to prove that, they have to certify they had the certificate of title and then they retain it. Yeah, and that's probably why you've been getting applications for replacement titles as well because that they've got to say to PEXA, yes, I've got the title deed. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. So, so that will be something that won't be necessary once we, we once get, you get it. Right. <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask, actually, is that part of the LRS audit ever that, um, they check to see that people have held the supporting documents or? Absolutely. Oh, right. So that is a key purpose of the audits to make sure that all of the documents that a person says that they've certified, that they've retained and checked are, are held there. So the certificate of title is, is one of those documents. Right. So um, just, just on that point, when we move away from certificates of title, the subscriber is still going to have to check a person has the right to deal with land now it's been done by just looking at the type, the certificate of title, which was should never have been the only proof of a person's right to deal with land. Uh, but once we move away from that, people will have to think of other ways of checking for a person's right to deal with land. And that might be, for instance, checking a rate notice mm-hmm. to verify that the person is not only John Smith, but that the John Smith who lives at this particular property that he's yeah. proposing to sell. So having a look at a rate notice or some other document like that is a good way of proving a person's right to deal with land. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of audits, um, we know that the ELNO, well, PECSA at the moment, and New South Wales LRS conduct audits on subscribers to ensure that they're compliant with the model participation rules. Um, are there any issues that come up routinely? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well... Um, Auditing is a, a an important part of the whole e-conveyancing process. It's undertaken not so much to catch out practitioners and, and penalise them, but just to make sure that the system is secure and remains secure and that if people need help, uh, then that they are given help on what they should be doing, not punished because of things they might have done incorrectly. The common errors seem to remain consistent and they mostly relate to the client authorisation. And so it's really important because when uh, it, it just might seem like a form, but the client authorisation is, is a key component of the whole e-conveyancing process. Previously, you would have had the owner of land actually sign a transfer document to sell their property. 
Now what the owner is doing is authorising the subscriber to affix an electronic signature to a transfer. So it's important that the owner signs, gives that proper client authorisation. So we take that very seriously. Um, At least 50% of client authorisations that are looked at in the audit process are unsatisfactory, which is very high. I do know that one member contacted me and she said, I've just been audited by LRS and he's unhappy with me about the, you know, the client authorisation form and I can't figure out why. And we looked at it and neither of us could figure it out. All we could think was that the, when they printed out the form, it automatically, for some reason, put um, writing in above the subscriber agent's area and that area hadn't been, hadn't been signed. And so we wondered if perhaps the... Um, whoever checked it had sort of thought, oh, there should be a signature here and um, hadn't, you know, hadn't actually realised that, no, that just shouldn't have been completed at all. Anyway, she wrote back and said, look, I'm sorry, can you explain what I've done wrong? And it came back that they hadn't dated it. Oh, right. You know, to my mind, that's great that they're, that the checks are that careful. Yeah. That, you know, it's important that every I be dot and every T be crossed. Um, and she went... It's such a simple thing and I'm happy to do it. It just never occurred to me. Yeah, and that's what we, we say with the audits. It's no penalty for, for that kind of thing. Mm. It's just saying, remember, this is an important document. So um, things that we've found on the client authorisation that were wrong were um, not including the full legal name, leaving out a middle name, for instance, not having it dated not specifying all the transactions that are taking place. So, for instance, not specifying that a transmission application was going to be part of the package of documents when it was obviously required. But surprisingly and disappointingly, we often find client authorisation forms that have not been signed at all, and we've also had had them where they've not been even provided at all. Mm-hmm. So turn up and there's no client authorisation. Is that someone who's inexperienced or an oversight for that particular matter, do you think? Or is, is the I'm word not, not out sure. there? No? I'm okay. not sure, so but hopefully the importance of the client authorisation yeah, has been known. Other things that come up in the audit really relate to verification of identity. So things that are an issue around that are relying on evidence that isn't sufficient for the verification of identity standard when saying that you used the verification of identity standard. As, as we know, the verification of identity standard is a safe harbour process. You don't have to meet it every time, but if you don't follow the standard, then you say, I didn't follow the standard and I did this method of verification and you must take a note of what that verification was. Right. So a standard file note saying attempted to to apply standard, unable to because ABC, um, have accepted this, this and this. Yes. And that, that will be fine. But to say I applied the verification of identity standard but you didn't and the documents aren't there, then that that would be a fail. Right. So there's no problem with not applying the standard but then you have to, to keep the file note, as you said. Yeah. Well, actually, that now leads me on to actually uh, my next question, which was about settlement agents, because I know quite a few practitioners have elected to keep instructing a settlement agent to do the PEXA settlement on their behalf, you know, provided the agent is a subscriber on PEXA. 
and that necessarily requires the subscriber to create and digitally sign the electronic documents on behalf of the client. Has this caused problems? Yes, but what I would like to say is that uh, there's no problem with using e-settlement agents, Mm. that it, it is interesting how times change. We're now with electronic conveyancing and so business practices changed and a lot of the old settlement agents are now becoming e-settlement agents. That's just a part of business transformation. So there's nothing wrong with e-settlement agents as such. But it is important to remember that when the e-settlement agent is lodging the documents, they, they are acting as if they were the subscriber for the client. They have to hold a client authorization so the client authorization is from the client to the e-settlement agent and it's the e-settlement agent who is is required to do the verification of identity now the e-settlement agent is able to use the conveyancer or whoever has instructed them as their identity verification agent so that in that way the conveyancer could still do the uh, verification of identity check but it's the e-settlement subscriber who is responsible for completion of the client authorization. Without wanting to dob anyone in, I do know a few practitioners who have mentioned to me in passing that, oh, I just send um, my VOI across to them with my settlement instructions. Is that satisfactory? Can they rely on the principles? They they can rely on the um, principles VOI if the principal has been appointed as their verification agent ah, and the, so the prin- principal then has to complete the client authorization section that talks about the verification identity. Right. Okay. Because I have to say that I, along with a few other people, thought that the settlement agent had to go and do their own VOI, perhaps on top of the first VOI, but, but the principal can can share their own. Because I, I was under the impression that Arnek was very, very, very unhappy with the idea of people sharing VOIs. Well, there's one thing with just sharing VOI and just, and then it, it would be wrong if I took your VOI but certified that I had VOI'd the person. Right. You can't do that. Right. But you could do the verification process for me as, as long agent. as, oh, as my you've agent. you've got a principal and agent relationship yes. that dictates that. Thank you for clearing that up. But um, talking about that, there is a, a guidance note on e-settlement agents that Arnic has put out, uh, and it's on the Arnic website. And all of those things are covered in, in good detail oh, on that guidance note. Okay, well, thank you very much. And on that note, I think we'll leave it there for today. Thank you, Leanne Hughes, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this AIC NSW Conveyancing Conversation. Special thanks to Leanne Hughes and to Peter Moran and Colin Biggers and Paisley for providing the venue. Your responses, ideas and suggestions can be sent to events at aicnsw.com.au. This podcast is a production of Pulley & Co. I'm Julian Pulvermacher and I look forward to your company next time. This podcast is a guide only. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice and should not be taken as such. Should you require any further information on any aspect of the podcast, you should refer to AIC NSW or a licensed conveyancer.